Welcome to today's Voices of Conservation Science. On this podcast, we talk to people doing science, and that science is then used to conserve natural resources. I'm your host, Andrea Litt, and I'm here in studio Zoom, where we continue to be with Keith Wellstone, who's a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. Welcome, Keith. How are you doing today? Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for taking the time to visit with us. I'm excited to learn more about you and your path and your research. And why don't you just get us started by giving us a little bit of background? Sure. So I'm originally from uh, the Midwest. I grew up in Minnesota in the Twin Cities area and uh, lived there until I was about nine years old. And then uh, my family and I moved out to uh, the central coast of California where uh, I lived in Santa Cruz, California, and, uh, you know, pretty much spent the rest of my childhood um, growing up there in in the Santa Cruz mountains. And um, then I went up to Sonoma County, just a couple hours north, and attended Sonoma State University, where I received a bachelor's degree in environmental studies with an emphasis in conservation and restoration. Um, And after that, I worked for several years uh, seasonally, kind of move, moving around the state of California, um, and then landed out here in uh, in Yellowstone, and uh, where I worked for a few years, and before uh, starting here at Montana State University. Well, as a fellow Midwesterner, born in Wisconsin, um, what I know from Wisconsin is it definitely looks different from Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. And as yeah. much as I have love for the Midwest. Um, I'm guessing that was a pretty big change for you when your family picked up at nine and and moved to Santa Cruz. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, in addition just to the the weather change, uh, just the landscape was completely different. The, um, you know, going from the Twin Cities to you know relatively, I guess a, a you know a larger town in Santa Cruz. Uh, it was a little bit of a change there, but but um, yeah, I mean. It, it's hard to beat the weather in Santa Cruz. So I forgot about, <laughs> I forgot about the snow pretty quickly. And, um, a bit more sun. I would, I would be willing to, to wager. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and absolutely. then you're on some, some different kinds of, I mean, the great lakes again, do not get me wrong. Um, big fan grew up not very far from Lake Michigan, but being mm-hmm. on the coast of, um, of California, that, that, had to been a nice place to spend part of your childhood. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was an incredible place to grow up. And, um, like I said, growing up in, in the, the Santa Cruz mountains, you know, we were surrounded by redwoods. Um, and you know, there were some hiking trails near my house and it it was just a, you know, an awesome place to be able to spend my childhood. And and redwoods, redwoods. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the thing that'll make you feel uh, your place in the world, even when you're an adult, much less when you're a kid of being dwarfed yeah. by these really old, amazing trees. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about going, going to spending time in California and then moving up the coast to, to then going to Sonoma state and, um, and, and this, this major that you had. And I'm curious if you always knew that you wanted to pursue a career in conservation. You said that your, your degree had this emphasis in conservation and restoration. And was that something you always knew that could be a career for you and would be your path? Yeah, it was actually, you know, it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't 
a very straight line for me, I guess, in terms of my career trajectory. It doesn't um, seem to be a theme on this podcast that, that people's paths are not, not always straight. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do uh, going into my undergrad. Um, you know, I, I, I knew I wanted to do something that had to do with, with, you know, conservation or, or environmental science. Um, but I wasn't sure exactly what. And so initially I, uh, you know, signed up to major in environmental policy. Um, and quickly realized that that wasn't the the path for me. And so it was about my, my junior year where I really, you know, really found that I wanted to go into, you know, fish or wildlife conservation. Um, and so, you know, at that point, um, I was pretty, pretty far into my studies. Um, but I, I tried to dive head first as much as I could, uh, you know, moving forward from then. Is that kind of the point um, of your undergrad career in your junior and senior year where you're really getting into the specialized classes anyway? So it's probably not a terrible time to, you know, to, to really figure that thing out while you were just diving into those, um, those more specific classes. Did you have a sense of what your like job might look like when you were, when you finally settled on a major? Yeah, that was, that was another thing I, I was, you know, uncertain of, I knew there were, you know, I knew fisheries, uh, you know, ecology and fisheries management, as well as wildlife management that were, were, um, you know, potential career paths, but I didn't really know exactly what those entailed. And so, uh, it wasn't until I graduated and started working seasonally for, you know, uh, you know, the California department of fish and wildlife. And I worked for, a, a you know, kind of a semi-governmental water agency up in Marin County. Um, it wasn't until then that I, that I really discovered, you know, what fish biologists do and sort of that career path and what, what, uh, you know, what was possible. What was it about, uh, specifically about fisheries that really, really spoke to you as opposed to maybe you going to the, the wildlife side of things? Yeah. So, you know, I, I didn't fish a ton growing up in, in Minnesota. Um, I started fishing a lot more once I got out to Santa Cruz, um, which is probably, you know, backwards for a lot of, a lot of people. Um, yeah, fish, fishing's kind of a big deal in, in, uh, in the Midwest. There's, there's just, you know, some, some big lakes, some might say great. And then, and then there's definitely some other lakes, a lot of those. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and so, yeah, you know, kind of get, you know, diving into the, the conservation field for a career. Um, you know, I was, I was, you know, I, I would, I, I thought that I wanted to be, uh, you know, fish, fish biologist or wildlife ecologist, but I thought those, you know, careers were, were relatively unattainable. Um, but I think I really got into uh, fisheries, you know, once I graduated and, and got a little experience, you know, working, working in fisheries. I saw a little bit of the, you know, the aquatic ecology side in terms of, you know, wildlife and amphibians. Um, but, uh, you know, the fisheries work was, was what really, you know, got me, got me sort of jazzed up about, you know, what was possible in the future. And so, um, yeah, just like, the, the, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I don't mean to cut you off. I, I, you had mentioned those couple of those positions that you had taken. Sounds like maybe when you found this, the spark for, for fisheries, you mentioned working for the state of California 
and then and then a few other positions that you held. Um, any any of those positions or those places or um, duties that you want to highlight that were especially helpful for you to 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 make to get that curiosity flowing? Yeah, yeah. So I spent a summer um, out in the northern Sierra Nevada working for California Department of Fish and Wildlife, and um, I was working on a project mainly that was focused at restoring Sierra Nevada yellow-legged frogs. Oh, and so a lot of the, so cool. Yeah, and so a lot of the work we were, we were doing was actually uh, you know removing non-native fish from from high mountain lakes uh, you know in certain areas that had been stocked there historically. Um, and so that was just an in- incredible summer, you know, spending, spending, you know, you know, a week at a time in the back country, um, in the desolation wilderness surrounded by granite peaks. Um, Sounds amazing. Yeah. I got some of my start, my research starts with, with reptiles and amphibians. So I definitely have uh, a, f- a fondness for amphibians and I can imagine imagine you being in those places in the summer and yeah, I can see why that, that might get you excited. Um, were there any particular people that, it sounds like that experience was one of maybe many mm-hmm. things that were instrumental right. in helping you, but, but were there particular people that, um, were really important in helping you figure out your path and help you be successful? Yeah. During my undergraduate, um, you know, about my junior year, I, I was fortunate enough to take a field ecology course out in uh, Belize and um, the professor that, that coordinated that course, uh, Dr. Fran Keller, she was, she was really instrumental in, uh, you know, sort of sparking my, my curiosity in this field. And so she really encouraged me, you know, during that two week course, uh, you know, we collected insects and got to, you know, learn about the diversity of insects um, in the tropics. And it was just, you know, it was mind blowing to me. And, and so that really sparked my curiosity. And then after getting back to, to California, um, she sort of took me under her wing and, and advised me in some undergraduate research, um, with, with frogs out there and, and just really, you know, encouraged me to, to pursue, um, this career field and, and, you know, instilled sort of the confidence in me that I could, that I could make a career out of it. Yeah, it's really important to have those people that see in you what you haven't seen yet and mm-hmm. to help you um, bring that vision, bring that vision to life and, and match it up with um, what they see and what you see in, in you and, and really encourage you. And how cool, again, to be, I can imagine you being in Belize and, and thinking about all the cool amphibians in particular that are, that are in, that, in that place. And, and so now I'm, you've got this guy who grew up in Minnesota and then goes to California and then goes to Belize and every time getting exposed to these new scenarios and, and yeah, what, what a cool experience to have as part of your undergrad. And I'm glad that she convinced you that you had research under your belt. It's very cool. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Did you, um, did you face other hurdles along the way of, of, I mean, it sounds like you had to, she, she helped you see what, what you were capable of, but were there other hurdles that you encountered along the way? Yeah. You know, I think it was just, just really building the experience, um, you know, working seasonally, um, and, and building up my resume to get me to the point where I really, you know, felt as though, um, I could go to graduate school, conduct research and, you know, one day be a fish biologist. And so, 
yeah, I think it was just getting over that hurdle, that sort of dauntingness that, that, you know, there is about this profession, you know, fish and wildlife management, um, and, and sort of building up the enough experience, um, to where I felt as though I could make a career out of it. Yeah. We talk a lot on this podcast about how competitive things are and how you have to just keep applying and, and the positions are like you mentioned seasonal. And that means that there's a lot of uncertainty for people. And, and absolutely that is, um, that is a daunting, daunting, daunting thing that, um, that, that a lot of us, maybe all of us have had to deal with to some varying degrees and, and that, you know, can probably be a deterrent to some extent, uh, for people who, you know, just, don't want that uncertainty or that, um, those experiences that maybe, you know, potentially could erode your, your self-confidence, right. As you, you apply and apply and apply and, and don't, and don't get positions. Yeah. yeah and I you- think it's, I, I think that, you know, it, it's also just very daunting in terms of, um, you know, being able to, you know, uh, having the luxury of, of going out and working a lot of these seasonal positions that might not pay very well. Um, and so I was fortunate enough to, to have that, you know, sort of have the foundation to, to where I, you know, maybe could, could work for, you know, $10 an hour and, and move across the country. And so, yeah, I'm fortunate enough to be able to have those experiences, but I think that's another daunting aspect of this field. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another thing that we, we definitely have talked about a, a, a few different episodes. Do you, um, you, you know, you mentioned luck and I, and I don't, I don't think it's entirely that you, you were able to secure many, many positions in California. And then you said you talked about coming to Yellowstone and then now getting into graduate school. Do you think that there were uh, any particular things that you can, you can share with our listeners that you think helped you to be successful, to string together those, those various positions or to stay positive when, when maybe it was uh, challenging or when the the uncertainty of where you're going to live next, um, was really, was feeling insurmountable. What do you, what do you think helped you? Yeah, I think just, you know, staying, um, I think it was, it was really just staying flexible and, you know, being willing to, to take a position that, you know, might not have been the perfect position, but it was a position that was going to help me build, build my experiences and, and, you know, give me, a new perspective, maybe working for a new agency, a new office, and and really build you know my skill set. And so, I think it was being being flexible and being adaptable, um, and and keeping an open mind about you know what opportunities could lead to the next, and sort of building bridges along the way, and, and creating you know good relationships with the people I was working with because you never know what what one door is gonna you know lead to, uh, you know, one door is gonna lead to the next. And, you know, you never know what kind of connections you're going to make along the way and what little bit of experience is going to give you that, that leg up to, to be competitive in the next position. So, yeah. Yeah. I liked how you you basically reframed this, um, this, the challenges of uncertainty and the challenges of, um, the short-term positions of, of making them looking at them as the opportunities of how you were going to what you were going to be able to learn or take in from or experience from each of those kinds of positions and, and adding to your, your arsenal of tools and your, your whole set of experiences and systems that you've worked in and species that you've worked in, then, then you can take to the next, next place. I think that's a really nice way to, to look at what, um, 
yeah, it could be very, very daunting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, you meet so many great people along the way too. And so it's, it, it, it was, you know, one of the most enjoyable parts of my life being able to move around and, and, uh, you know, make, make friends at all these, at all these jobs. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and be in some, some really spectacular places um, along the way and, and, and get to experience these cool species. I, I do think that network of people, um, is just so crucial, uh, not just as, as enjoyable, colleagues to work with, but then those that help, help you build the next opportunities. You talked about those doors. And, and I think that that also has come up a lot in these conversations of how important building and maintaining those networks and making sure that, you know, you are opening doors by the work that you're doing and the connections that you're making. Yeah, absolutely. You're listening to today's voices of conservation science. Today, I'm talking with Keith Wellstone. He's a graduate student in the Department of Ecology at Montana State University. All right, Keith, I want to switch gears and let you tell us a bit about um, about your research. So maybe first start out and introduce us to where you're doing your work and, and your study species. Yeah, so I'm conducting my research in Yellowstone National Park. Um, and specifically the Lamar River watershed, which is in the northeastern portion of Yellowstone National Park. And um, my, my focus species is the Yellowstone cutthroat trout, um, which is a native subspecies of cutthroat trout uh, to the watershed. And it's the namesake of you know, Yellowstone National Park. And I'm also working with uh, non-native rainbow trout that were stocked into the watershed in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, as well as hybrids of the two species. So, um, so that's, yeah, that's really interesting because you, you now have both, both ends of the spectrum, the, the, the very uh, native species and, and, and like you said, have the namesake with the park and then the not native species and then these, these hybrids in between. So tell mm-hmm. us, what what in particular are you focused on with these three species in this in this part of the park? Yeah, so the park service is you know taking actions to try to um, you know remove rainbow trout and hybrid from the watershed um, and prevent the the spread of, of hybridization between the two the two. And um, my research focuses on evaluating different strategies that the park service can use to um, evaluate changes in um, the abundance of hybrids and uh, cutthroat and and you know looking at looking at cost effective strategies that will help the park service um, you know evaluate these changes and link those to the management actions that they're taking to try to preserve the Yellowstone cutthroat trap. So I want to unpack that a little bit and try try to ask some more questions. You said you're going to evaluate different strategies. So, so what might some of those strategies be? Give us some examples to make it concrete. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're looking at a few different um, sampling methods that the park service can use. Um, we're evaluating the use of electrofishing, which is a commonly used uh, sampling method um, to temporarily stun uh, fish so we can collect data on them as well as uh, snorkeling um, and then also utilizing um, the volunteer angler program in Yellowstone National Park as a way to, to pu- leverage uh, public you know public involvement um, so that anglers can go out and, and sample fish um, 
be part of the be part of the process yeah that's that's neat so okay so those are the those are some of the sampling methods that you're you're looking you're examining are there Mm -hmm. are there other strategies besides the sampling methods yeah so in addition to the sampling methods it's also looking at um you know the 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 number of um it's looking at the you know what what should the park service measure what is the the response variable that they're going to measure repeatedly over time um, to detect changes in abundance. And so, you know, we're looking at things like absolute abundance. Um, we're looking at things like catch per unit effort, which is a common uh, index of abundance used in fisheries. And then also, you know, measuring just the relative frequency of these rainbow trout and hybrids um, compared to Yellowstone cutthroat trout. So trying to evaluate, you know, different uh, metrics that the park service can can use to evaluate uh, the success of these uh, removal efforts. Okay, so the uh, and and correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but it sounds to me like what you're doing is is saying what what do we want to what are the best things to measure if we want to detect change in abundance of these three species? How do we want to measure it to best do that? And, and then I think you mentioned also something about linking to the, the management actions. And um, so there's ongoing work, as you mentioned, being done to remove some of these, some of these uh, um, non-natives and, and perhaps some of the hybrids as well. Are there other man- management actions that you're, that you're, you're helping them think, think through? Yeah. So they, they also have a mandatory uh, kill angling regulations that they instituted. Um, so, you know, requiring anglers to, to remove non-natives when they catch them. And so, um, you know, part of my research is, is looking at, you know, how accurate are um, angler identifications of these hybrids in the field. So, right. Cause like, they got you know, these mix, maybe these mix of the two species and maybe they look more like one than the other. Is that fair? Yeah, exactly. So a PhD student, uh, Dr. Kurt Heim developed a, a key um, to identify, you know, these two, these different taxa. Um, and so, you know, part of mine is evaluating, you know, how, how useful is that for us, uh, in the field when we're sampling? And then also, uh, is it, are the anglers that are using that, you know, using it correctly or identifying these fish correctly? Um, and what are potential limitations to that? And was my or my earlier characterization of you know examining how, what exactly you're going to measure, how exactly you're going to measure it, and then under different scenarios of of, of management action, was that was that a, a reasonable way to to talk about your work? Yeah, I think it's it, it's really you, it's yes how to measure, what to measure, and and you know how much effort does the park service need to to expend moving forward uh, to be able to, you know, detect changes in those metrics that that we're measuring. Um, And then, yeah, sort of it's more of laying the framework for the National Park Service to then be able to to link their, you know, management actions to those changes that that we may observe. Gotcha. So the the management Mm -hmm. pieces come come later. You're helping them figure out how to best set themselves up to collect the data that they need um, to, 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 to figure out the changes that are occurring based on whatever, whatever is going on in the environment. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so how is it that you do that? You know, a lot of people we've had on this podcast talk about the, the field work that they do, the sampling that they do, you know, measuring things and, and, and catching things or, or taking samples and, and things like that. How, how do you go about evaluating these different, these different pieces, the, the what to sample, how to sample it and how much effort is it going to take? to figure out the, the trade-offs and, and which, which of those, which of those scenarios might be the, the, some of the best options. How do you do that? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's very hard to estimate how many fish are in a river. Um, It's a, it's a funny thing. I mean, and that holds not just for fish, right. That holds for lots of organisms. We struggle with that uh, out of the water too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's, uh, so yeah, you know, um, so, you know, there are methods to estimate, you know, the number of fish in a river, um, but some of them are, are pretty costly. And so it re- requires, you know, repeated sampling. Um, and so there, there are also, in addition to, you know, trying to measure that the numerical abundance, the absolute abundance, there are ways that we, uh, you know, try to approximate abundance that are, um, you know, cheaper than, than maybe some of those repeated sampling efforts, estimating absolute abundance. Um, and so, um, you know, with, with all sampling, there's also, um, you know, estimate estimates of, of variation that affect our ability to, you know, detect changes. Um, so you're kind and of looking met- at these, these sort of cost benefit, um, trade-offs, right. Of like, you're going to put in a lot more effort and that's going to be expensive, but maybe you'll get, you'll get an estimate that, um, that is, is a little bit more precise. You, you feel good about if you went back another time, you'd get a similar value, but, but the, again, the flip is that it just takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort and it costs a lot. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's it, it's difficult to estimate, you know, the absolute number of fish um, in some of these stretches of river. And so we're, we're, you know, we're looking at how much does it cost to actually estimate that number? How precise is our estimate of that number? And then what are some other ways that we can, you know, try to approximate that, that number of, you know, the actual absolute number of, you know, Yellowstone cutthroat, rainbow trout, hybrid trout in these, in these uh, river reaches. And so, um, you know, we're looking at absolute estimation and then we're looking at some of these approximations and, and how precise our estimates are of each one. And how does that translate to, you know, the amount of money that the National Park Service has to spend on these sampling efforts? Can you lay out those scenarios for the for the Park Service so that they can then make the decisions of, of how they want to proceed moving forward, given given the pros and the cons and the and the strengths yep. and the weaknesses? Yep, exactly. And I, I think I can, you know, again, guess based on what you've just said. I mean, it seems pretty clear to me why why your work is important. I think, um, agencies taking a step back and being like saying, why, how should we, how can we best do, do what we want to do to get the best information, but also recognize that, that, um, that there's these trade-offs with cost and time and effort. Um, but, but if you had to say in a nutshell, why your research is important, what would you, what would you tell people? I think I would say that 
it, you know, it's important because it's, it's not answering any, you know, groundbreaking ecological questions, but it, it's, it's informing on the ground management um, that the National Park Service is taking to, to preserve, you know, Yellowstone cutthroat trout, this, the species that's native to the park that, you know, is, is enjoyed by, you know, the public that is visiting the park and anglers that, you know, enjoy catching Yellowstone cutthroat trout. And so it's, it's really, you know, informing this on the ground work that the National Park Service is doing. And, and, you know, hopefully it will be incorporated into a, to a a long-term monitoring program uh, moving forward. Yeah. And to me, I, you know, just, I think one of the most rewarding and perhaps most challenging, but definitely the most rewarding aspects of our work is, is that, is that they can often be used um, to make on the ground decisions. And I don't know, I, I don't, I don't build things. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have a lot of tangible things that come out of my work, except, except those on the ground um, management decisions. And so that's got to feel really, really good to be involved in, um, in helping inform the decision-making process. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's just, to, uh, sorry, go ahead. It's great to have transitioned from, you know, working in the park for, for several years as a technician and working alongside the biologists now, um, you know, you know, sort of sort of leaving a mark on on the park that's provided me with so much. Yeah, that is really career. cool. That is really cool mm-hmm. to have thought of you, you know, moving through the ranks and and being part of that, the data collection efforts that now you're helping to to guide, right? Exactly how how should the efforts of people like you be best be best used that that does have to feel good. And, and you, the nice thing that you can bring then is your extensive knowledge of the system, carrying that those years of experience as a, as a technician and moving, moving through the park, bringing that into this, into this position, which I, I think is really valuable for, for projects to have that ecological knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So so Keith, I assume you're you're pretty fairly on, early on in your 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 degree, your research, and you're starting to wrestle with these questions, and you've got some more time before you're going to know the answers. But if you could fast forward to that that endpoint where you you've completed your work, what would you say the best thing is that you could discover from your research? Yeah, you know the best thing that we could discover is, um, you know how. You know, finding the the most cost-effective strategy for the park service to move forward, and and you know, for them to find that, you know, these management actions that they're taking to remove non-natives in this watershed is is working to, you know, it's working to the benefit of the Yellowstone cutthroat. It's it's working towards, um, you know, preserving the subspecies. So, um, that, yeah, I think that that would be the best. The best I like that, thing you, that we could discover. I like that you've done sort of two fast forwards, I think is like you come up with a really good effective strategy for them to collect data and and the 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 sampling method, the thing to measure, you figure out how much effort it's going to take. And then you've taken it the next step to say, after they've implemented that, they figure out that that it's it's that their their management actions are working. And I and I like that you've connected connected the dots all the way back to the, all the way to the end, even beyond your, maybe what happens when you're done with, with your project. Yeah. Yeah. It's very cool. Okay. We're at that final, 
tricky question we ask of, of our interviewees. And that is, what's your favorite animal? What's your favorite plant? And we will allow you to pick one of each if you so choose. Oh, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, you know, you'd think that it would be some fish species. Uh, you know, <laughs> or I love, frog. I don't know. You seem yeah, like you got some amphibians. love. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, you know, I would have to say dogs though. I, I, you know, I think dogs are, dogs are just the best. Uh, yeah. That, that is a, that is an excellent and fair response. And, uh, and, and I'm guessing you have one or more special dogs in your life that are, are leading you to answer in that way, or they've been part of your life. Yep. Yep. I grew up with dogs and, uh, I, I plan on getting, you know, a dog as soon as I can stabilize, you know, my career out of grad school. So, yeah, I, I, I can concur that, that they're, they're pretty, pretty amazing to have in your life. And, um, and I think it's, it's, a, it's right on. It is an answer that, um, we, I feel like I've heard maybe once before. And, um, so I am, and I'm not surprised that that, that comes up for people. Well, Keith, thanks so much for taking time to visit with me today to tell us about your path, to tell us about your very interesting and important research. It's really, really fun to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Andrea. I really appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for listening to today's Voices of Conservation Science. If you're enjoying the podcast, we would love it if you leave us a review, share it with a friend, this episode or any episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere where you find your podcasts. We also would love to hear from our listeners. You can send us your thoughts about um, the podcast in general, or send us any questions you might have for our guests. You can email us at todaysvoices at montana.edu.